One of the most basic human desires is to be understood, to be heard fully and deeply by another human being. For survivors of sexual abuse, that desire is deeper than any of us can really explain. But the fulfillment of that desire happens all too infrequently. And I think we're left feeling misunderstood, often more ashamed or disconnected. And what I've seen and experienced in my own life and in hearing stories from other survivors is that the antidote to all of that has been this special little thing called empathy. For that reason, I think a lot about empathy. I think about it all the time, you know, working with survivors or just even thinking about my own story or people that I really care about going through hard times in life. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about it today. Well, actually a lot about it today. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what it is, what it isn't, and why it matters. Emotion researchers generally define empathy as the ability to sense other people's emotions coupled with the ability to imagine what someone else might be thinking or feeling. Brene Brown, who I absolutely adore, said empathy is feeling with people. So it's being willing to be in a dark place with someone else, however scary it may be, taking the perspective of the other person acknowledging that their perspective is their reality. One of my friends recently said the way they looked at empathy was allowing the other person to be the expert of their own experience. Mm, That's good. Mm -hmm. One big piece of empathy that gets me riled up, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more, is just not judging. That Mm -hmm. is such a big part of, of what empathy looks like in our modern world with our modern day problems. And it's also just recognizing what the other person is feeling. If you've heard me speak on a stage somewhere, you've probably heard me say, people in pain don't need answers. They need to be heard and they need to be loved. So it's being that listening ear, the warm hug, the shoulder to cry on, the the one who shows up with groceries or takes the kids to the park. It's the one who validates the pain and the fears and puts the attention on the hurting person and off of themselves. It's the one who listens. It's the one who encourages. It's not relating with your own story. Oh, (laughs) preach, my friend. (laughs) Let the people talk. When I'm in pain, I don't want to hear about your friend Susan's sister's son's wife who also went through something similar. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That doesn't make me feel better. It drives me away. I also don't want to hear about a book you read recently about a natural or supernatural remedy to my suffering. I just want you to listen. I just want you to sit and and just be there with me wherever I'm at. It's loving people through meeting their basic needs, looking for ways to help. People in pain are not going to ask you to do the things for them that they really want you to do. They can't even think about that. So they need you to come to them with actual ideas. Which you've actually done that for me. <laughs> so I've gone through some stuff and it wasn't that you were forcing anything on me, but I'm not the type that will ask for help or when mm-hmm. I need cared for. Mm-hmm. And you just putting it out there and saying, hey, I'm gonna dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. And then be going, okay, that's actually what I need, but Sometimes you're in so much pain, you can't even verbalize or you don't even know Mm -hmm. exactly what you need. Yeah, it's too hard to reach out and to ask. So I think that is part of it. I mean, it's hard for me sometimes to feel like, oh, I don't want to be too much or I don't want to push myself. But I'm also giving you the opportunity to say, no, I don't need that. Absolutely. But most of the time it's like, yes, that would be really great if you don't mind. 
So what you're doing is you're using words and actions and a message that's connecting with someone mm-hmm. versus this generic message that really doesn't hold any value. That's exactly what it is, because empathy is not sympathy. So empathy will fuel connection. Sympathy actually drives disconnection. So when people say, well, I'm sorry for your loss or mm-hmm. I'm really sorry you're hurting, it really doesn't do much for the person who is hurting or who has experienced loss. Um, when we say I'm sorry for dot, dot, dot. Um, we're not really apologizing. We're telling the person who's hurting that we're actually separate from them. You know, I'm sorry mm. you're there and I'm over here. You know, they're hurting and we're standing up above this deep pit that they're in and yeah. just throwing words down at them. Um, we're not helping them. We're driving disconnection and we're making the person feel more alone or maybe even more ashamed at how they got where they're at. Well, and I've been in that situation even myself a million times and I feel like there are moments where I don't know what to say. Yeah. So I'll stick with one of those generic sure. messages thinking like, I, this is all I got. <laughs> yeah. But I've also learned in how others have cared for me that I'm challenging myself to go a step further. And I want to deliver a meal for you and your family or even sending flowers without even asking. You just do it. Yeah. And that people can hang on to forever. That's really good. And what you said is you've learned it because you've received it. Yes. I think that's really powerful. When you're a recipient of true empathy, um, not only does it help you understand how good it feels to be heard and to be accepted and to be met where Mm -hmm. you're at, it also helps you to better understand the strength and the vulnerability it takes to... um, to share your needs with other people. And so then you want to meet that for other people. You want to bring empathy to them because you've experienced it yourself. Yeah. There was a nursing scholar that talked a lot about the four attributes of empathy. Her name was Teresa Wiseman. She said, to be able to see the world as others see it, it requires putting your own stuff aside to see the situation through your loved one's eyes, to be nonjudgmental, and getting in touch with your own feelings in order to understand someone else's. So it requires, again, putting your own stuff aside to focus on that person. And then she said to communicate your understanding of that person's feelings. So rather than saying, well, at least you don't have this going on, or at least you still have this, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, it could be worse. You could be in this place or whatever. She says to try something like, I've been there and that really hurts. Mm. Good. Or an example from Brene Brown, she said um, something like, it sounds like you're in a hard place right now. Can you tell me more about it? Yeah. You know, it's meeting them there and asking them for more. It's not delivering something back to them. So when you use that term, you know, at least dot, 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 that's very harmful for people in pain because what I've experienced is that you're not going to change from your current situation unless your current feelings are validated. You have to be heard before you even can go through the process of change or even to see hope for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to validate that someone's feelings are real, whether you like their feelings or not. Yeah. You have to validate them because that's their reality. That's what they're feeling. Well, and I think it's being aware enough to acknowledge the place right now and not sticking your head in the sand yeah. and knowing that whether you're the one going through the pain or you're the person caring for them, it's not in most cases going to stay that way. Mm-hmm. Dark, heavy, painful. Eventually things will move on, mm-hmm. but it's just acknowledging where that person is or where you are in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because only when, you know, person A knows that person B understands their pain, can person A trust person B enough 
for a change or a process of change to even happen. So if, if person A feels misunderstood, she's going to keep trying and trying and trying to make herself understood and then losing the trust in person B with every failed attempt. Mm-hmm. So I think oftentimes the best response really is, I don't know what to say, but I'm really glad you told me. Yeah. You know, which leads us to another idea of being a fixer. Oh, (laughs) I struggle with that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because fixing the other person is not what's often needed, nor is it necessarily your job or even Mm -hmm. within your ability to do so. Right. But sharing, you know, a listening ear, being caring, sitting with someone in the midst of their pain, walking them to the hospital or the counseling center, making a phone call um, that they're having a hard time making, but sitting next to them and doing it and you know, when we feel heard, cared about, understood, we also feel loved, accepted, and as if we belong. And that can make so much more of a difference in someone else's life than feeling like someone's just coming in and trying to save the day. I have fallen guilty to the whole fixer thing so many times, Same. and even with good intentions yeah. and not even realizing that I'm doing it. But as I've been walking with one of my siblings who is struggling with addiction, it mm. has really shed some light on some things that I don't like about myself, but it's been a good learning experience. Um, And as I see that I don't necessarily understand everything about the disease, Mm. I'm not a counselor and all I can do is be a cheerleader. Yeah. And as much as I want to jump in there and manipulate and control because I want a good outcome and the outcome I think is best, I have to realize that I'm a cheerleader. I'm playing a support role, which is having empathy yeah. and just being on the sidelines. And I'll, I'll send a package, a little card for my son and, mm. you know, love you so much. We're thinking of you were here. I'll send the occasional uh, text message and, hey, just checking in. How are you doing today? And just away from afar that I can say, I am here. Mm. I love you. I care for you. And even in my messages and what I'm saying back is not trying to fix and saying, here, well, you need to do this. Yeah. I don't have all the answers. I'm never going to have all the answers. And it's almost humbling yourself to realize, as you mentioned earlier, I don't control anything in anyone else's future. Mm -hmm. As much as I care and I love for them and I want a good outcome, it's not up to me. And I've realized that they will learn so much about themselves and their journey and wrestling things out. And they're going to miss a lot if I have to intervene every time and fix stuff. So I'm actually hurting that person and their healing journey. Journey when I throw myself in the mix. That's major maturity right there. Well, I, hi, <laughs> as you know, I have learned this the hard way. You have, but that's how we get there. Yeah. And that, oh, yeah. I mean, for people behind us, you know, we look behind us and see people that are doing the things we used to do as the fixer and uh-huh. how unhealthy it was. And we just want to be like, look at this now. And yeah, to, but to be able to have that perspective is so, so good. And you're right. It's not only good for us as the helper, it's yeah. better for them as it the hurting. Is suffering person. I think it's interesting too how when you're in the trenches and you're just helping them wrestle it out versus you coming down with this iron fist and saying do this because that leads to them constantly disappointing you because they didn't do what you suggested or the outcome didn't end up being what you had instructed you know it's interesting and a beautiful thing as messy as it is and a roller coaster and it's crazy and all over the place your relationship can go to another level and see what you fought through together Mm. without you having to be the ringleader they've got to figure this stuff out on their own. Yeah. And the boundaries that you put in place, I think in the end are a sign of love. Absolutely. At first and it might hurt, 
But yeah. later, it's longevity yeah. and loyalty and commitment to this relationship, still meeting them where they're at, still loving them hard, being their biggest cheerleader, yeah. but not to a point of burnout and and scarring the relationship. Absolutely. And I'll say the biggest piece to getting to this place is really humbling yourself mm-hmm. and realizing the lack <laughs> of control that you have. Yep. And it's painful at first. And you know, as I've texted you and talked to you many times, you mm-hmm. feel like you're showing them, I don't care, or I'm not there for you by all of a sudden setting up some boundaries. Yeah. But you are not only setting yourself free, but also them and the relationship. And like you said, it can grow. And mm. it's just a different level of respect, a different level of love, and a different level of compassion. Definitely. Yep. I think when we're the, trying to be the fixer, one, it leads to codependency, but two, it's us thinking too highly of ourselves. And oh, yeah. <laughs> if we can humble ourselves and say, I am not God, I'm his hands and feet to this person mm-hmm. that he loves more than I do. So we, our role is to point them to him. And that, you know, that's our end role. But really, as you're talking about being the cheerleader, you know, to your sibling that's going through such mm-hmm. a hard time with addiction, everything, I know that that role is one of the most, if not the biggest roles in his healing and in his journey right mm-hmm. now, even above his therapists, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Like they're doing this hard thing, but you're the one that's mm-hmm. the day to day. I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's acknowledging that I am on my journey mm. and my sibling is on their journey. And that's the way life is meant to be. And we collaborate and we cross paths and we fight for one another Mm. and we're in the mix together. But each individual has their own purpose and their own plan while they're Mm. here on earth. And you have to, to surrender to that. That's right. It's not up to me. It's not up to the person's counselor or their circle. You're there as support. And that is it. Mm -hmm. And they're the expert of their own experience. You give them the toolbox and you cheer from the sidelines. Yeah. And honestly, that's been when I look back on my healing, you know, I found my voice at 14. I'm 38 now. Woo! <laughs> Old lady. <laughs> I know, right? I'm thinking about the people who are the most influential in my healing journey. And I've had a couple of excellent therapists mm-hmm. and people that were professionals in their field and, um, you know, even law enforcement along the way, different people who you would say, well, those are the heroes. And they are. But the ones that have made the lasting impact on my heart have been the Marys, the cheerleaders Mm -hmm. along the way. You know, I've talked many times. I wrote in my book, Hush, about my music teacher who was responded to me in all the right ways of, you know, I believe you. It wasn't your fault. You didn't deserve that. I don't look at you differently. I'm not here to pity you. I want to be here. I want to listen. Tell me more. And she wasn't trying to fix. No. She was speaking life into you. Yeah. And she knew she wasn't my counselor, but she was an open ear and she was loving me anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, in college, I remembered one of the RAs um, on my floor had just come to me one day on the middle of campus and said, Nicole, I've just noticed you've been a little off lately. Is everything okay? And I said, well, yeah, everything is perfectly fine because I was still trying to wear that perfect girl mask. Yeah. But she said, well, if you ever want to talk, I just want you to know that I'm here because she knew that there was something there, but she wasn't going to try to guess it. Mm -hmm. She wasn't going to try to tell me what I needed to do differently. She was simply offering her time and a listening ear. And at that time in my life, I was ready to talk. Um, I just didn't know who to go to. And so I tucked that in my pocket and I knew when I was ready who I who was safe enough 
to go to. And she was definitely one of them. So it's been people like that along the way, um, just who offer their time and their heart and, and give to you when you need it most. Mm -hmm. Um, that's empathy to me. That's coming alongside someone in, in pain. You may not understand what I'm going through. If you do, great. But I don't want to hear more about your story than I want to share mine. Mm. Um, but if you've not been through it, that's okay. You know, I think of my friend Sarah, who many times in my life, she's never been a survivor of sexual abuse or any type of sexual violence. But she cared about it and she would help me walk through the lies that I was believing. But rather than constantly spitting truth back at me, she just validated where I was at. Yeah. And just then slowly and very quietly gave me some truth in small doses. But most of it was focused on validating what it was I believed and why I would believe that. Mm -hmm. That again, that's empathy. I think one common misperception about empathy is that we're going to make things worse for the person in pain by empathizing with them. Have you ever felt that way or thought that? Say it one more time. Like by coming alongside someone and like meeting them where they're at and validating where they're at, we're going to make it worse. We're going to make them wallow in their sadness about it. I honestly don't think I've no. ever, I've never thought about Well, I think that. I've seen that a lot more in Christian circles in the church because they want to pull them up out of it quickly because yes. it's uncomfortable oh, yeah. to sit in oh, some yucky. Yeah. darkness with this person. So you want to quickly just give quick answers and, and pull them out um, because we don't want to, we don't want to enter in. So that I think leads people to be fixers. Uh, now that you're saying it and explaining it more, I'm like, oh, I'm guilty of that too. And again, yeah. it's coming from a good place and having a good heart, but it's almost like, and I hate to even say this, but how my brain is wired, it's almost like checking things off mm. and okay, help them yeah. fix this, yeah. get it all pretty and clean again. I don't want to continue watching them suffer because mm -hmm. it actually hurts me. Yes, that's exactly what and, I'm saying. And that goes back to, well, you have to allow your heart to be broken, to care and love for people, mm -hmm. but a lot of people don't want to do that no. because then you're watching watching mm -hmm. dark places, suffering, go on for a really long time. And right. that's hard. It is hard. But we make things worse when we try to make it better. Absolutely. We really do. Yeah. That's why empathy is such an amazing skill to develop. And it's so important, especially I feel like in the church, we've got to learn this stuff. It makes people better leaders. Empathy is not a personality trait. I've heard people say, you know, well, I, I just have a gift of compassion or that person just doesn't have it. Mm -hmm. But it's not that. It's a choice. Empathy is a choice. And yeah. you can practice it and get better at it or you can stay on your high horse and never do well at it. And you'll be a horrible leader and you'll never be able to minister to people. <laughs> so it's where you attempt to understand another person and their experience from their perspective and their response to their experience. So someone could come to me with their story of abuse, and I may have questions in my mind about that actual experience, but if I am there to empathize, which 100% always I am, I will not ask those kinds of questions to get better details or to get a better understanding of the experience. I'm here to hear what you felt that experience was from your perspective and what your response and your effects of that experience are. It's yeah. more listening, less yeah. talking, unless that person invites you into, well, have you yes. experienced something like this? If they are then roping you in to reply, exactly. that makes sense because that's appropriate. So empathy has looked a ton like listening, lack of judgment, 
a ton of patience. It's selflessly holding space for people. Dr. Diane Langberg, who was on our podcast in the past, talking about trauma Mm -hmm. and trust. She recently said, I saw that she had tweeted this actually yesterday. It was really good. She said, learn how to sit and be quiet with someone who's suffering. When we don't know what to say, it's usually best to say nothing rather than allow our discomfort with silence and pain to drive us to rattle off an answer. I think this has been a problem in the church more than anywhere because, you know, I think there's a lot of inner pride and the need to fix people and mostly to judge their situation. So I love me some Jesus, but I can really struggle with people who also love him and sit on their high horses because Christians can do way better in this field. You know, when you're throwing some cold recited verse at someone in pain or you're using some weird Christian talk with someone who's in a major sort of tension in their lives, you're not going down in that deep, dark hole with them. Mm -mm. You're sitting on your throne and you look and sound nothing like Jesus at all. (laughs) That goes all over me. Well, I think about just people who skim the surface, make a snap judgment, Mm. say hurtful things without meaning to, and they kind of walk away and this person's stuck with like all this shrapnel everywhere, left with, you know, didn't see that one coming. And now they have something else to heal from, from being damaged from someone's, you know, words without getting in the trenches and and really listening and caring. And that's what church abuse looks like. That's a lot of what the hashtag church too even looks like, but what does look like Jesus to me is engaging in real conversations like a grown-up. You know, being humans with actual flesh and blood, caring for someone's heart, holding space for the expression of their real feelings, even if they're things you don't agree with. Empathy draws others out from their shame, and it helps people move from blame and shame towards themselves, towards growth and giving. So I was thinking about this with the church and, you know, so many people being hurt in the church and survivors hiding their stories because of shame, feeling like they won't be accepted. And so you go to church and so many of the survivors that we talk with, you know, they go to, to a church with symptoms of abuse, you might say, effects of abuse, things like anxiety, depression, or an eating disorder. And they're told to get it together. Or you know. if you pray hard enough, or yeah. if your faith is strong Trust enough. Trust Jesus more. Yeah. And it's almost like it makes that person feel like there is a broken piece of, well, I don't, my faith isn't strong enough. Or I'm not praying hard enough or whoop, it's fixed. It's gone. Yes. Yep. It's the opposite of empathy and it's super harmful for survivors of abuse. And if you're talking about those residual effects, the shrapnel of abuse, Mm -hmm. you haven't even acknowledged your story yet. You're just talking about the the effects. People can't even handle that. And they tell you you, that you need to pray more or you need to forgive somebody or whatever to be better. Now you're not even able to share your story. So a friend of mine was actually telling me a story today. She said, I was once told my anxiety was caused by bitterness that I hadn't dealt with. Uh. She said, well, how am I supposed to tell you then the truth of why these things exist? She said, the judgment and the feeling like I did something wrong without people knowing my story. It was just too much. And I ended up leaving the church for three years from those types of interactions and the lack of, of empathy I found in the church. So I asked her, well, what would have made things different for you? What could they have said or done differently? She said, if they had said things like, there seems to be something deeper going on, and I want you to know this is a space that you are free to be and to process. I won't try to fix it, but I'm here. 
I see you. I mean, if we can just do those little things. She said not, quote, do you think you're anxious because you don't trust God enough? Or do you think you need to really deal with issues with your dad so you can forgive and not carry the weight of that? She said, no, Brenda, I'm fucking starving myself because I don't know how to deal with the trauma I experienced. So maybe ask me a question. It's not about my dad. It's about my teacher who raped me, you know, as a little girl. Mm. Why don't you stop trying to make up my story and ask me to fill in the blanks of my own story? We're surrounded by stuff and I've been guilty of it, too. We're surrounded by a bunch of know-it-alls. Yeah. Everyone knows everything. They already know your story. You have anxiety. It's because of this. You have an eating disorder. It's because of this. You got to pray this first and it'll be gone. Stop. Just stop. Put all that stuff. As much as you think you know and you have Jesus figured out and all this, you don't. Like, give it to him. Literally, in the, sorry, I've got to just go off on this stuff. It's in the moment. There's a human being in front of you. Picture Jesus in front of you. Yes. Love him. Love her. And leave it at that. You don't ask questions. You don't judge. You don't give the Bible verse. You don't give this Bible study fixed me enough. Yeah. Enough. (laughs) Exactly. We're not Jesus. No. He's on his own throne. (laughs) Yes. You don't have a throne. You're human. You're broken. You're messed up. Yes. And he will use you if you can just humble yourself. Cross the street and meet the person who's laying there bleeding. And don't tell them why they're bleeding because you don't know. Yeah. Just love on them. Pick them up. Hug them. Ask them if they need something to eat. Like, it's I can't. <laughs> it's a problem. It's a major problem. But this is the world that we live in today. And there's, I know, people listening who have heard these same things over and over. And I am so sorry that someone responded to you in that way. I'm so sorry that someone tried to fix you without even knowing your whole story. I'm so sorry that someone judged you from meeting you one time. Empathy means looking someone straight into the eyes rather than down at them from a pedestal. It means sitting shoulder to shoulder, you know, rather than at a distance. And survivors of sexual abuse deserve that kind of empathy. And I think that it's one of the most healing things that can happen along our journey. We're all in process. The person who is spouting off verses that don't even make sense to your story right now. They're in process too. We're mm-hmm. all we're all figuring this life out. So don't let one person's horrific response set you so far back on your healing journey that you don't ever try again because there are people out there that will love you where you're at and will walk with you through this hard time. And and that's important. And your courage to be vulnerable is commended. And try, try again. I know I've come face to face with so many people that have done these same things. And it's hard to pick yourself back up and be willing to be vulnerable again and say, this is what I'm feeling. And I know it's so ridiculous, but please just listen and understand and 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 try to just meet me where I'm at and and walk with me to the next step. You know, it's it's scary because you think you're going to maybe even lose that person. Like, what if they think that what you're feeling is so crazy? What if they you know, expect you to be better than you really are right now. But you have to say it. And saying it and having the courage to be vulnerable and say those hard things, man, there's so much freedom in that. And it, and it just helps you feel more connected to yourself. You know, being connected to your emotions is such an important thing. And as a survivor, we have to do that. And to do that means vocalizing where we're at, where we're feeling, um, some of the things that might even scare you to say yourself, to be able to say it to someone else who has empathy towards you. Um, man, there's so much healing in that. 
So find that person. Empathy is so important in this modern world that we live in, in our culture. It's what I think to be essentially the critical element to genuine reconciliation between race, closing the gender gap. It's also a super helpful way to connect with your kids. Empathy can be used in every aspect of your life. It's so powerful. It's such a connector. And if you want to make a difference in the lives of those around you today, if you want to be a better leader, practice empathy. It's a skill like any other thing. And the more you practice it, the better you'll get. Brene Brown said, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. And empathy is one of those greatest gifts you can give your loved ones. It's the gift of being understood, of being heard, and having a true and meaningful connection with those you love. So we've covered a ton of big picture stuff and even hitting on caring for or being there for an abuse survivor. And I think more specifically, some really good examples of ways to talk to or care for someone in your life who maybe has gone through some sexual trauma. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy to know what to say to someone when they come to you with a story of sexual abuse, you know, especially if they're a friend or a family member. So. First of all, realizing if you're someone who has been trusted with someone else's story, someone's disclosed to you a really difficult experience, um, just remember to treasure that. And first and foremost, let that survivor know you really treasure their trust and feel really special that they would come to you. And then just be as supportive and non-judgmental as possible. Sometimes support means providing resources, which Mary will give you at the end. Um, or seeking medical attention or reporting the crime. But almost always, again, it's about empathy. It's about listening. That's the best way to support a survivor. It's saying things like, I believe you. Took a lot of courage to tell me about this. Um, Don't ask questions. Don't ask why questions. You know, your job is not to get all those nitty gritty answers or the graphic details. Your job is simply to sit with that person, support them love them, believe them, saying things like, it's not your fault. You didn't do anything to deserve this. Survivors so often blame themselves, especially if they know their perpetrator personally. So reminding the survivor over and over again that they were not to blame. Another one is telling them they're not alone, that you care about them. You're there to listen and to help however you can. And another one is just saying, I'm really sorry this happened to you. It shouldn't have happened. So, again, you're using the I'm sorry language, but it's in relationship with a person. Mm -hmm. So when we talked about earlier, you know, saying the I'm sorry, you know, you're in pain or I'm sorry for your loss. And that doesn't do anything for connection. It causes disconnection. What we're talking about more is that's an in-person kind of thing. Yeah. So it's great if you want to comment on someone's, you know, social media. Yeah, and, on their Facebook page. Yeah, I'm really sorry, sorry yeah. you're going through this. That's awful. That means something because you're taking the time and the energy and publicly making that statement that you care about them. But in-person is when it is a disconnection. So you're saying that, you know, you're sorry, this shouldn't have happened to you, but you're still walking them. That's just part of a long conversation. You're acknowledging this experience has affected their lives. You're saying this this must be really tough for you. I'm so glad you're sharing your story with me. Thank you for allowing me to enter into this with you. That communicates empathy. And then remember that healing is lifelong. There's no timetable when it comes to recovering from sexual violence. And a survivor needs Support people. So listen and be there. Communicate without judgment. 
um, avoid phrases that suggest their healing's taking too long or asking how much longer do you think you're going to feel this way? They don't know and they don't want to feel like this. So don't put that pressure on them. So be patient and avoid putting pressure on them to engage in activities they might not feel ready to do yet also. Some of it is being willing to be patient with their process of getting out of the mud, you know, and you want to pull them out and you want to entice them with little fun toys. But sometimes they've got to sit there for as long as they need to. And you have to be okay sitting there and seeing them in the mud, too. And then check in periodically. So, you know, their abuse may have happened a long, long time ago, but that doesn't mean the pain is gone. And we've said this many, many times on our podcast that healing is lifelong. The effects come and go. Healing is not linear. So checking in with a survivor to remind them that you're just still there. You're still showing up for them. However, they need you to be showing up for them and that you're always believing them. Lastly, know your resources. You're a strong support system, but that doesn't mean you're equipped to manage someone else's health. A couple of resources we've recommended at times for survivors are the National Sexual Assault Hotline. That's 800-656-HOPE. Or you can even message them at online.rain with two N's dot org. Also, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-TALK. That's 8255. But remember that only they can make the decision to get help. If the survivor wants to seek medical attention or plans to report, offer to be there. Your presence can offer the support they need, encourage them to practice good self-care, and remember it's important that you take care of yourself too. The sexual assault hotline is there for support people as well. So you really need to take advantage of all the resources out there. And lastly, if you haven't already, please check out my book, Breathe, Finding Freedom to Thrive in Relationships After Childhood Sexual Abuse. It's just a helpful tool for those who are in relationship with an abuse survivor by providing guidance, confidence, and encouragement as you seek to help and support your loved one. And you can get that on my website at I am onevoice.org and just click on the store. If you were just really feeling the message that you heard today and it really just spoke to your heart, maybe somebody popped in your head, somebody who could really use this kind of message, feel free to pass it along and make sure you subscribe and feel free to write a review if there's something that really connected with you.